0: Welcome back to the Space Dermatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is Episode 107, The Fragility of Randomized Controlled Trials for Systemic Lupus Erythematosus and Lupus Nephritis Therapies. This was published in Lupus Science and Medicine in the um, BMJ Journal in um, 2023 by Gabrielle Figueroa-Para and Ali Duarte-Garcia. Um, I was also full disclosure. I was also part of this manuscript. I'm talking about this today because I think it's a very interesting question. And I have touched before on a number of these um, topics regarding lupus trials, lupus outcome measures. And, and this, this paper just brings a lot of it together. And I think it's a very interesting methodology paper. So it'll be a quick podcast, but I think it'll be interesting. So, so follow along with me. Now, the title of this podcast is The Fragility of Randomized Control Trials for Lupus. But what is how do we define fragility? Well, this is the inspiration of this paper came um from um Ali Eduardo Garcia and his group, and they they wanted to look at this fragility index and apply this to lupus trials. So so what's the fragility index? These indices like this are always so hard and opaque and difficult to understand, but this one's really simple. You're simply calculating the minimum number of patients whose status would be required to change from an event to a non-event to make the study of interest lose statistical significance. All right, so maybe that doesn't sound totally as simple <laughs> as I thought it was. But let me give you a more tangible example. So on a prior podcast, I talked about the BLISS lupus Nephritis Study, right? This is a large randomized controlled trial published in 2020 where they looked at the renal response from the um, the, the drug belimumab. And in the Bliss lupus nephritis trial, there were 223 people who got belimumab and 223 who got placebo, and it was barely, barely, barely statistically significant. And when you look at that trial, every once in a while you ask yourself, you know, what if... Five people switch groups, right? So say the people are five people in the, the balimimab group who instead of not having a good outcome had a bad outcome. Would that, would the trial still be significant? You know, it's kind of an interesting question to ask yourself. Like, how, how robust is this, this, this statistical information? And this, this winds up being important because we run frequentist trials. So if you don't know, there's a Bayesian side and there's a frequentist side to the force. And (laughs) I'm a frequentist when it comes to clinical trial design. I'm going to have a podcast coming up um, very soon um, discussing these two issues. But um, in the interim, just know that the frequentist perspective is the one that we're usually using, where we have a p-value, and if we cross this magical boundary of 0.05, then um, you know the trial is considered statistically significantly different, and that's all you need for FDA approval in a lot of cases. So this is a very important boundary, but it's sort of arbitrary. And a lot of, so if you have a trial where the p-value is 0.049, you know this isn't really reflected in the outcome. It's statistically significant, even though We all know that if you flipped one patient into the other group, it's probably going to flip to being not statistically significant. And the interpretation of the trial will go from being a, oh, this is a landmark study. Let's roll out the red carpet and make a billion dollars to, oh, sorry, this was a totally failed trial. And so the the p-value doesn't really reflect this. And there's no, when we discuss trials, we don't really discuss this. Now, the fragility index is exactly this. It's saying, okay, we have a trial. We got this statistically significant result. We have a p-value. We have an effect size. But how many patients would need to change their outcome in whichever group in order to make this a not significant trial, which I think is a very fundamentally interesting question. So To assess this question, uh, Dr. Figueroa, Parra, and crew um, included um, all the phase three randomized placebo-controlled trials of patients with active lupus or lupus nephritis. So they excluded phase twos and fours because they said, like, you were really looking at these ones, these phase three trials, these big RCTs that are necessary for regulatory approval. I mean, in the United States and increasingly in Europe, you know, what really matters is getting that phase three trial. That's how you get approval, how you get market share. So drugs companies really care about that. And then, you know, as a clinician, you know, we, we Live in this freaking this world, and so whether or not your tri- your trial was at p under O on a phase three trial is really what matters. So they wound up finding 20 RCTs, 16 in lupus and four in lupus nephritis. And there's a really nice uh, table in their paper. I highly recommend just grabbing the table right now if you want to follow along with me. But I'm just going to like take some highlights from you because there's a lot of interesting trials in lupus over the last years. And and first, I'm going to discuss the ones that were considered positive. So these are trials where, you know, the p-value, we met that 0.05 threshold, dipped below it, and we all broke out the bottles of champagne and threw a party, right? So the first one to talk about is the baricitinib SLE Brave trials. I've talked about these a lot on Twitter because I think it's hilarious. SLE Brave 1 and SLE Brave 2 were published side by side. One of them showed, you know, what looked like a benefit. Um, and one of them showed what looked like a non-benefit. And the ultimate interpretation of that was that they didn't they didn't wind up pursuing baricitinib in lupus. So that's probably not going to be a thing that we'll ever be using or get approval for. But, um you know... How fragile was the study? Well, so at the Baricitinib at four milligrams, that the high dose is not available in the United States. You know, over a little over five hundred patients were randomized, and if you flipped four people from you know having the event or not having the event um, in either group, you would wind up making that trial not statistically significant anymore. So I, th- I think that is actually kind of reflected in the outcome. If you look at um, the way the FDA approved it, approached this the way the company approached this, they wound up abandoning it because they said, hey, this was kind of a fragile result. We're not going to pursue it further, which is uh, a good outcome. But this gets a little spicy when you start looking at other drugs. So let's talk about voclosporin. So voclosporin was recently approved for lupus nephritis. It's calcineurin inhibitor. Um, there are 179 patients randomized to voclosporin and 178 randomized to placebo. SIBO. Ultimately, this was interpreted as a successful trial. It received FDA approval. It is now available in the United States and abroad. Um, And what did we see for our fragility index? Well, 15. So if 15 people had jumped, um, outcomes out of this huge trial, you know, there are 179 in each group, uh, then this would be considered a non-significant trial. I, I think I'm overall comfortable with that, but then you have to take a step back and say, well, the outcome was this sort of funky renal response business, and, you know, is this really stopped preventing EGFR? So, okay, fine. That's vocal born. Even more spicy is the belimumab data. So if you look at the belimumab trials, these were some fragile trials. So the Bliss lupus nephritis study, which I covered in the podcast, I mentioned that in the introduction, we had 223 people who got belimumab and 223 who got placebo. How many patients would need to change their outcome in order to make this trial non-significant? The answer is three. <laughs> it's pretty crazy when you think about it. We have 446 patients that we randomized, and if three outcomes had gone the wrong direction, this would have been considered a failed study. So this just speaks to the degree to which the way we are approaching trials is really, really quite fragile. And a lot of the time, drugs are approved or not approved, you know, just by by a whisker. Now, this is definitely true for anifrolumab. I've talked quite a lot about anifrolumab. There's a TULIP-1 trial and TULIP-2 trial. The TULIP-2 trial was considered successful. This looked at Bickler response at week 52. There were about 360 patients randomized in in TULIP-2. The fragility index was 11. Okay, that's fine. I mean... It seems like there could have been a couple people who switched groups and it would have stuck around. But remember, there was TULIP-1. TULIP-1 was another randomized controlled trial. This was published immediately before TULIP-2. This also randomized about 360 patients to receive anafrolimab or placebo. And the the reverse fragility index, because this trial was not significant, this was a failed trial, was 27. So we would have had to have 27 people change their outcomes for this trial to be considered statistically significant. I don't know how to weigh that against the TULIP-2 study, but it sure looks to me like there's a lot of clarity here. TULIP-1 looked bad. TULIP-2 looked good. FDA just went with TULIP-2, and now we have a multibillion-dollar drug um, <laughs> that I do think there's some value here, especially for skin scores. But it really speaks to the potential fragility and lack of robustness in this research area so what do we make of this let me take a couple let me take this a couple different directions so first you know at the end of the day a lot of our lupus trials are, are relatively fragile using this fragility index this says that you know some of these approvals were snuck by where had things fallen just a little bit differently these drugs that we consider you know statistically significant differences and blockbuster drugs they are now um would have been put into the dustbin of history with many of the other failed trials for um lupus and lupus nephritis you know in this paper that. Look at a whole bunch of other things like belsibamod and epratuzumab, and you know, even rituximab failed in lupus and in clinical trials. So there have been a lot of these notable failures, and the trials that have succeeded. When you look at how many patients it would have taken to flip those into being failed trials, it's really quite stark. Now, that's sad. let me give you the other side of this, which is that I have some reservations about this whole fragility index concept. Now, thinking about that Bliss lupus Nephritis trial, now I'm telling you that had three patients switched their group, it would have been considered non-significant. True. But it's not that it would have been no benefit or harm. You know, those three people were just what was necessary to, dem- to reject the null hypothesis, essentially. That's the way we do frequentist statistics. And so that doesn't mean that the drug would have gone from, you know, working great to not working. It just would have, our confidence in its surprisingness would have been a little bit lower. Now, now the back, the flip side of this is like, is that considered a success or a failure? And to a degree, this should be considered an enormous success because what this is telling you is that, um, Fury and all the people who ran these trials, um, they actually managed to guess exactly how many patients was the minimum number needed to demonstrate some type of benefit um, given their outcomes and given what they know about lupus. So, I mean, in a way, you could view this positively and say, like, this reflects a remarkable, remarkable degree of expertise. You know, they managed to design the minimally necessary trial to get their approval through. So that, that's kind of an optimistic take on it. But, I mean, let me do the flip side here. And since we're going back and forth, the flip side is that, like, why are we designing trials that are this fragile? We're spending billions of dollars running these trials that, you know, if things fall slightly differently, then we're going to be in a world of this is not significant, this didn't work, and we're going to reject the drug completely. So in the in the paper that we we wrote, you know more and a quote here, more simply pivotal trials in an SLA could be designed to be more robust. The easiest way to reduce the fragility of SLA trials would be through assuming a lower response rate among treatment groups. End quote. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? We're designing trials that are just sneaking by by a hair's breadth. And maybe we should just be designing more robust studies. Probably that's going to be more expensive. It's going to take longer. It's going to take more patient patients to be included. But I with all of the studies in lupus in particular that have been relegated to the dustbins of history, it, it feels like we should be aiming for more patients and less optimistic assumptions, which is why we keep winding up with these studies. They're just, just on the border there, you know? I also think this is useful as far as explaining why so many of these trials have failed, right? Every time we have a failed trial on lupus, everyone comes out of the woodwork to say, you know, things like, well, you know, this is because lupus is hard to study. There's too strong of background therapies. Um, you know, standard of care is already pretty good. Uh, there's too much steroids. It's difficult to study lupus, yada, yada. And, and maybe the point, the problem really is that we're just coming at this with Overly optimistic assumptions. And this gets me to my last quote from the paper, which I think I might have wrote, but I'm not even sure at some point. I just love this line. So um, and a quote. In our efforts to understand why so many therapies have failed in SLE, we should consider the most obvious explanation. We do not understand SLE and our drugs do not work very well, end quote. (laughs) I don't don't know who put that in there, but I love it. And I think it's very apt. Like at the end of the day, I think that this is the fundamental problem. We don't understand lupus very well and our drugs don't work very well. And so we, we come at it with what we think are reasonable assumptions, but given the inadequacies of our knowledge about lupus and the inadequacies of our therapies for lupus, we wind up just designing trials that are fated to fall on one or the other side of P equals 0.05 contingent upon just a few patients going either direction. And that is a very fragile way to approach clinical trial design. It's a very fragile way to approach generating new knowledge and trying to get therapies approved for patients. And I do think that this project was really interesting because it emphasizes just how fragile our current approach to knowledge generation is. And I think that is nowhere so acute as it is in lupus, but this applies across the board in a lot of different areas of rheumatology. I hope this was interesting, kind of a quick podcast. Um, I appreciate Dr. Figueroa Parra for including me and Ali Duarte Garcia for including me. It was a a fun project and an interesting question. Um, And I think it made for a good little chat. (laughs) Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, Have a great week.